I wonder whether you have ever been part of a team or a community or a couple that is coming together in the most amazing way to achieve great things, but simultaneously on the inside of that team or behind closed doors, there are tensions. Differing viewpoints, frustrations with particular members, comparison of commitment and sacrifice, perhaps conflict, strained relationships. Take my two kids as an example. At school or church or the playground, they're thick as thieves, you and me against the world, we can do this dynamic duo. My favorite manifestation of which is when Clemmie feels her little brother is under any kind of pressure from somebody else being intimidated and around goes the casual arm of protection from his big sister. But at home, things get a little more complex because at home, each one is occasionally transformed into the other's arch nemesis. Last week, they got into a big disagreement about something shortly before bed. And of course, Angus knows not to go to bed angry, to forgive, to forget. But this particular night, not only did Angus not want to reconcile with his sister before bed, he was actually worried he'd have forgotten about it by the morning. So he made a sign and he taped it to the inside of his bedroom door so that it would be the first thing he saw when he woke up. And the sign simply read, Clemmy is wrong. Are they on speaking terms now, you ask? Yes, they are. But that came in two stages. Stage one was when Angus asked me to rub out the word wrong. But he was quick to add that he hadn't yet decided which word would replace it. Which I thought was just a great way to leave somebody to stew for a while. Clemmy is dot, dot, dot. You know, it's like when you're waiting for somebody to WhatsApp you back for 10 minutes, typing dot, dot, dot. But then stage two came and the sign now reads, Clemmy is cool, but look closely and you will see it's written on a sticky label and not on the sign itself. Semi-permanent, just in case. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, because today we are going to read part of a letter that one of the pioneers of the early church, the Apostle Paul, wrote to one of the very first Christian communities, the church in a city called Philippi. And this church has some internal tension. It, this is not one of Paul's grumpy letters. He starts by saying that he thanks God every time he thinks of them and that he prays for them with joy because of their sharing in the gospel. This is a community that is living faithfully and joyfully as followers of Jesus in the city. And together with Paul, they're also part of something even bigger, this Jesus movement that's turning lives upside down and planting churches right the way across the Roman Empire. And Paul also commends them for the way they've banded together in their suffering. Many of them are being marginalized or just mocked by their fellow Roman citizens because of this new life they're embracing. And yet, Paul tells us, they are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, unintimidated by their opponents. And despite being under this pressure, they've remembered the pressure that Paul is under. 
he's in prison, and they sent somebody to bring financial support and to help him in whatever way he needed. And so Paul writes this letter partly to say thank you for that lifeline. So I guess we could say Paul hasn't written to them to say, you Philippians are wrong. He's written to them to say, you Philippians are cool. But there are problems as well. Big enough problems that Paul wants to address them as he writes. And they have to do not with what they're achieving or with how they're standing firm, but with what's going on between the members of this community. We read that there is murmuring and complaining, even two siblings who have fallen out, which is a huge encouragement to me. But there's also more to it. We hear about selfish ambition and about empty glory. People seem to be seeking personal advantage and questioning or comparing their importance, doing the right thing, perhaps, but for the wrong reason. Now, let's be honest. We know that great teams and communities that are doing brilliant things can simultaneously struggle in precisely this way. And Paul writes to them because he doesn't want these tensions to dampen their faith, their joy, their resolve, or their witness in the city where they live. Let's read what Paul says to them in chapter two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what we have just read is quite likely one of the first Christian worship songs ever written. Paul himself may well have been the one who wrote it, but even if he wasn't the one that wrote this song, he's quoting something poetic and carefully expressed. Fortunately for you, he didn't put the melody in the margin, so you don't have to hear me sing it. But in this song, we hear the story of Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. We get the origin story of Jesus, or maybe we should say the no origin story of Jesus, because while Jesus did, we hear, become human, he never became God. Before the incarnation, Jesus is the Father's eternal Son, who has total equality with God. 
in the incarnation, what's going on is this eternal son pouring himself out for lost and broken humankind. He's still God, but mystery of mysteries, God is now human, which means Jesus is not just equal with God, but also here with us. He shares our experience and our suffering. So you can see the early church really didn't mess about when it came to song words, did they? This is one of the most head-spinning moments of the whole Bible. And if you want to think more about these things, let me just say, I know a cracking theological college. So next, we get to the center of the story in this song. Jesus now lives in obedience to the Father, not rich, not powerful, not famous, but simply serving, sacrificial. And Jesus, who is God, even dies, not gloriously, but shamefully, on the cross the Romans reserved for slaves and for rebels. That's the middle of the story. And just when it couldn't get any more staggering, we come to the end. In the resurrection, who this Jesus really is, is unveiled for all. He is called Lord, God's own name, the one above every other name. And as God, he rules with the Father and he is worshipped with the Father forever. And so now, as he is being lifted up, people across the world are going to gather around until every knee bows and every tongue confesses who he is. And this is going to change everything. That's the story in Philippians 2. And the highs couldn't be higher. He's God. No one had further to descend than him. But the lows couldn't be lower. Descend he does all the way to death. And the vision couldn't be grander. This is a story into which you and I today are still wrapped up. Now, why does Paul break out into this song and story at this moment in his letter with the issues that the Philippians are facing? Well, because he wants them to see not just who Jesus is and what Jesus does, but why Jesus does it. In verse five, he says that this is an insight into the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And spoiler alert, he does it for the love, for the joy, and the life of the whole world. Words that Paul uses over and over again in this letter. That's why. But also because God wants us to have the same mind in us that was in Christ. The same love, same accord, same joy, same endurance, both in the outward as we live as his followers in our city and also the inward as we handle everyday tensions in our relationships, people we struggle with, things we long to change. And there's just so much here to unpack, but what I want to give you are three revolutions for our minds from this story, this song. Three things that take us into the mind of Christ and that can transform our minds as well. And the first one, is this, Jesus is Lord. And I know 
If you've been a Christian or you've been coming into church or tuning in online for even a little while, you could be forgiven for thinking, thank you, Captain Obvious, for your incredibly profound sermon points. And if that is what you're thinking, come on, go easy on me. I'm trying to give you a break here after all that stuff about Jesus's divinity and humanity a second ago. Seriously, though, there's something hovering in the background of this claim, Jesus is Lord, that we need to draw out. You see, about 50 years before Christ showed up, the city of Philippi had become a Roman colony. And as part of the empire, Philippi had flourished. They were wealthy, the city was gleaming, they had plenty, life was very, very comfortable. And so the people of Philippi were proud citizens of a great expanding empire. In fact, many soldiers had even retired in Philippi. And Philippi was one of those cities that just loved the emperor for all he had done for them and given them. During his lifetime, Caesar Augustus had, after all, conquered and brought prosperity to a huge part of the world. And then, having achieved all that, like some other rulers before him, Augustus even had begun to claim to be more than just human. Augustus had portrayed himself as this divine figure. And as he did that, he even adopted the title Lord and Saviour. Since that time, almost every day in Philippi, at mealtimes, political gatherings, sporting events, in the theatre, there'd been this ceremonial moment where the city confessed, Caesar is Lord. And now here's this community of Philippian followers of Jesus, who've encountered the presence and the power of the person of Jesus Christ. And they still seek to serve the city they call home. They're, they still seek to be a blessing in their community, but their minds have been revolutionized by this discovery. And one thing they've realized they cannot do is call Caesar Lord and Savior. And everyone can see that they aren't doing that. And so they're losing business, they're losing friends, they're losing trust. And their fellow Roman citizens find this not just rebellious, but frankly, a bit ridiculous. After all, let's just compare Caesar and Jesus. One rules over most of the known world with untold riches, while the other was a poor slave of the empire who died powerless and penniless on a cross. And so Paul retells the story of Jesus being Lord to remind them there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. While Caesar is a human who tries to elevate himself above other people to the place of God, Jesus is the God who descends to the place of a lowly human in order to serve us and to save us. Now, that was the Roman Empire in the first century, and this isn't. But maybe for us today, there are some red lines for us at work or in family life or somewhere else, things that involve proclaiming another Lord that we don't do. And maybe people around us don't understand or even find us ridiculous when we refuse to cross those lines. 
Or perhaps this reminds us that everybody in the world, no matter how elevated, has a Lord who they acknowledge, whoever or whatever it is. There are always places where we need to remember the beginning and the end of this story as we live as people who say, Jesus is Lord. The eternal love and the everlasting life of Jesus as we live in the middle of our own stories. Or perhaps you're new to faith or you're in a season where you're realizing that the Lord of your life or some part of your life has been other than Jesus. If that's you, notice Paul's approach here. It's a bit like that familiar story about counterfeit detection of uh, bills, money. When you're training for that role, they say, you don't get hundreds of counterfeit bills to train on. What you get handed is one real bill, and you're trained how to know it intimately. And as we know this Jesus as Lord better and better, we also become better at telling the real thing apart from the other lordships in our life. That's the first revolution. Jesus is Lord. And now we've said that to a Roman citizen, Jesus doesn't look like a Lord. He doesn't look like God. And that's because of a second revolution for our minds in this story, which is this. God is humble. When you think about it, this is just as staggering as the claim that Jesus is Lord. Humility really was not a positive character trait in the Roman world. It meant debasement, servitude. It meant being the bottom of the pile. And in Latin, the word humilis, from which we get the word humility, comes from the word humus, which means soil. Humility is being down in the dirt with muck beneath your fingernails. It wasn't honourable, it wasn't virtuous, and no one aspired to it. And everybody who had it was trying desperately to shed it. And in fact, historians say that the message and the story of Jesus basically transformed humility from a vice into a virtue in the ancient world. This genuinely is a revolution. And it did that not just by telling us to be humble, but by telling us that God is humble. That this characteristic, which seems to be the very opposite end of the spectrum to being Lord and being God, is in fact what God is like. And the place where this revolution takes place is in the life of Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus did not regard equality with God as Harpagmon. Now, I know that sounds like a very rare Pokemon. It isn't, but it is a reasonably rare Greek word. It can mean robbery, and the related word Harpagma means bounty or haul. But here it's being used a little bit differently. Some translations say that Harpagmon is grasped. And part of what Paul is saying here is that simply because he is God, Jesus isn't trying to become anything or anyone that he isn't. Caesars reach and grasp for godliness, but Jesus is the real thing. But actually, it's not just Caesar Augustus in the background again here. There's a biblical parallel 
And it's the very first story of the Bible, the temptation in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are told if they eat the fruit, they will be like God. They'll have equality with God. And it's seeking to have that that becomes the way in which sin and pride enter into the world. And that's how sin and pride have worked in people's lives ever since. Us setting ourselves in the place of God as Lord of our own lives, with our own lives being set to serve ourselves. It's the very opposite of humility, living as though we are someone we are not. You can reverse the song lyrics from Philippians 2, and then you get the picture. Adam, not being by very nature God, counted equality with God as something to be grasped, and he filled himself. He made himself everything. And even in our relationships with God and the people we love, we can be ultimately driven in this way. It kind of reminds me of what people say sometimes about the difference between dogs and cats. A dog looks at his owner and says, you give me food, water and shelter. You must be God. But the cat looks at the same owner and says, you feed me, you house me, you brush me. I must be God. Whether we're aware of it or not, our attitude changes dramatically at the fall. But now Jesus reverses this trend and he revolutionizes our minds because throughout the scriptures, he is the one who humbles himself. Jesus is humble. And you know he's humble because he says in Matthew 11, I am humble of heart with not a jot of pride. And now we can come to the second way in which people translate harpagmon, which is something to be exploited or something to be used to one's own advantage. This brings out the fuller meaning. It's not just that Jesus, unlike us, isn't striving to become God. It's that Jesus, being God, doesn't use being God to his own advantage. He doesn't simply claim what's his. He doesn't kick back and just revel in being God. He has every right to. Or as we hear in the Gospels, Jesus is the Lord who doesn't lord it. He doesn't lord it over others. Instead, in his divinity, he takes the form of a slave and is born in human likeness to be our Lord and Saviour. And if God becoming human wasn't already enough, he joins not a wealthy, powerful dynasty, but a poor, simple family on the margins of Roman society. And if that wasn't already enough, in a supreme revelation of the humility of God, he suffers the death of a slave. This is what was hard for first century Romans to swallow, as it might be for us today. But when we do, it revolutionizes our minds. It's when we see that God is humble. When we encounter the Jesus who takes nothing from us but gives everything to us, that we are freed and wooed to embrace the humility that will make us whole. In verse 3 
in this letter, we read, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Literally, the word there means empty glory. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. And there's a deliberate parallel here. In place of empty glory for himself, Christ empties his glory for us, as we hear later on in the song. He makes himself nothing. He empties himself for us. And as we follow after him, it's a Jesus-shaped humility that we embrace. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that's definitely what you see in Jesus. Not a low self-estimation, but a high other orientation. This humble God doesn't think he's less important or capable or worthy than others. He knows exactly who he is and what he can do, but it's about how he utilizes that. In our own case, yes, humility consists in remembering that we are not God. Jesus doesn't have that problem, but Jesus can show us what humility looks like because he shows us that it's also about knowing who we are as well as who we are not. He knows who he is, but he does not wield that to his own advantage. He wields it to be a blessing and a gift to others. Maybe we can remember here that like the word humility, which is connected to soil, Adam's name means from the ground. Perhaps being humble means being grounded, grounded in the reality of who Jesus is and who we are. So that's the second revolution. And now here's the final one that just ties this all together, which is that Jesus's story is our story. At the very start of our reading today, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy from God and through the community of the church. And when he says, if, 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 he doesn't really think there's an if. This is all already ours. This is our story and we're called to step into it. And so that's the first question that we could ask today. How are we seeking to live within this story? Are we leaning into the things that are going to encourage us and console us? It might be our CG or Alpha or a group of friends or worshipping in the car on the way to work or Sundays or something else entirely. And if we lack any of these things, well, are there ways in which we can step towards these things, any new things that we can step into. And then as we do that, there's a twofold encouragement for us to take away from this passage today, both for our teams and communities and all the good they do, but also for those tensions that sometimes beset them. First, we're encouraged to see that God can and does work through communities of disciples even when there are tensions and divisions between them. He doesn't simply abandon your marriage or your family or your team as though he can't use you until you've got your house in order. But then secondly, Paul also tells us 
that God wants to help us get our house in order. He doesn't only want to work through our community. He also wants to work on our community. He wants to reconcile us and to bring us together. He wants to make his story our story in everyday ways in our relationships with one another. And then the third encouragement is that when we see the end from the beginning, that's when we are ready to face the day, to live in the middle of this story. It's a story that gives us hope and it's a story that makes sense of our lives, even the dark moments of our lives. In James chapter 4, we hear, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And it's here in Philippians that we see the story that makes sense of that call. The key is to fix our eyes on the resurrection of Jesus, in which he was lifted up from the ground after his suffering and his crucifixion. Later on in Philippians, Paul says that God will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So even Jesus's exaltation is not just for himself. Like his humiliation, his exaltation is for us. It's our hope. It's our future. Yes, Paul acknowledges that the Philippians are not just blessed in Christ, but are also in this season sharing in the sufferings of Christ as they face persecution for their faith. Yes, he also acknowledges the pressure that that is placing on their relationships with one another and how things feel like they're coming apart from time to time. But if Jesus is exalted all the way from the grave to the throne, then the promises that we, as we turn to him, as we come to him, can be lifted up in all the places in our own lives that feel like death and the depths. And not just lifted up a little bit, made a little bit better, lifted all the way up to where Jesus is, to a new life that doesn't just make a minor improvement, but which will ultimately bring us to the greatest possible fulfillment of who we were created to be in him. As Paul says also in this letter, for me to live is Christ. So this story is our story. And stepping into this story begins by telling it to ourselves and letting it become our own. Amen. Let's take a few moments now just to pray together. And as we do that, you might like to place your hands in front of you like this. As we invite the Holy Spirit to place the story of our lives in this bigger story of Jesus. Maybe some of us are listening to this, watching this, and we've been wrestling with the identity of Jesus for a while now. And as we've seen today, it's a staggering reality 
who the Bible says Jesus is, but we have encountered his power, we know his presence, and we're ready to respond to him. If that's you, let just take a moment to respond to him in faith now. And let's also take a moment now to ask that God would come into the midst of our everyday relationships with one another, in our homes, our teams, our churches, wherever it may be. Invite him to come and to teach us how to embrace the, hum the humbleness that leads to life. Come, Holy Spirit. May we all have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together now.